Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the JedCast Dialogues with Changemakers. I am Jed Liano, Vice Mayor of Claremont on the, and the chair of the Claremont Lincoln University MPA Advisory Council. With me today, as always, is my co-host, Dr. Audrey Jordan. Audrey, how are you today? Hi, Jed. Good to be with you again today. I'm looking forward to talking with Senator Portentino. You know, when we think of an advocate for mental health, there is no better example of it than Anthony Portentino really wanted to have this episode, not just because of the mental health issue being so critical, but look at where we are in COVID. This has probably become an accelerated crisis. And who better to talk about it with than a senator who just got two bills signed, will continue to work on the issue. And so I know what I want to hear. Audrey, tell me what you're looking for in this interview today. You know, I'm really interested in how Senator Portentino is bringing a group of folks together within the schools. Schools are so under-resourced around this issue. So I'd like to learn a bit about how he's making that happen or the plans to make that happen. That's right. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about at Claremont Lincoln with our MPA program is how to convene coalitions and how to have hard conversations. Yeah. There's no question that When you're talking about structural change around mental health, it proposes reform to to institutions that probably don't want to see reform. And and how do you engage in that conversation? Really looking forward to this chat. To all of you listening at home, on the train, on the bus, in your car, at work, thank you for being with us on the JEDCast. Coming up next, Senator Anthony Portentino. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the JEDCast, and with us now, Senator Anthony Portentino. Senator, how are you today? I'm fantastic, Jed. It's great to be here. We've been talking about this for a long time, and we made it happen. Finally glad that we can talk about this, and I really wanted to get you on this show to talk about what has been by our audience something that everybody wants to hear about, and that's mental health. We all know you have been a huge champion in the space for mental health before COVID, last year and this year. We know that that's one of your major areas of focus. So let's get right to it. This year, two of your bills around mental health got signed by Governor Newsom, SB 14 and 224. Let's start with SB 14, which deals specifically with student absences. You know, aside from what's in the bill, tell me how this idea came about and where you were when people started talking about the formation. Well, you know, fundamentally, we have to treat mental health the same as physical health. You know, we have to get to a place where people are comfortable talking about mental health issues. You know, I always say you'll go to a party and you'll talk about your cholesterol, you'll talk about your weight, you'll talk about your kid's sports injury, but we don't talk about our own struggles with depression, a a family member struggling, and that's what we're trying to correct here. That's the big picture view is that mental health and physical health should be treated the same. And when I found out in education code for school districts that that's not the case. And so imagine being a teenager who's home because of anxiety or depression, rightfully home, and you're worried about whether your absence is gonna be approved by your school district, whether your teacher is gonna accommodate the test you missed or the lesson you lost. You know, that will just add to your stress. And one of two things will happen. You'll go to school when you shouldn't be going to school or you'll have extra stress and extra depression while staying home. And so the crux of the issue is to formally require school districts to treat mental and physical health the same way. 
one of the things that struck me when I met with an editorial board early in the process, an editor from a major newspaper said to me during the interview, what happens if a parent lies about their child being home with anxiety or depression? And I said, well, you don't ask that question when they say Johnny has a cold. Why would you assume they're going to lie about mental health issues? I said, the fact that you asked that question underscores why we have to take this issue out of the shadows and why we need this bill. So, Senator, help me understand this. So this bill was aimed to treat a mental health absence the same as a medical related absence. Physical physical health. Physical. Right. So does this mean that, in fact, that before SB 14, if you were home because you were going through depression, that it was an unexcused absence? Yes. Your school district did not have to accept that as a reason to stay home, where if you had a sprained ankle or the flu, those were approved reasons to be home from school. That's so, exactly right. So then there's disciplinary consequences for the unexcused absence. It's, there could, it's, the, it's the same as if you just basically played hooky and didn't show up. That would be up to the discretion of the school district and the teacher of how to deal with it. Now, to be fair, most school districts didn't you know, throw the book at a student, but there was no certainty in particular with the academic accommodations. If you missed a test, you know, a teacher could say, you know, no. And again, most teachers are going to be sensitive, but there are going to be those who are who don't recognize mental health issues, who, right. you know, maybe have a different perspective on it. And and that's why it was appropriate for Sacramento to come in and say, you know what, mental and physical health need to be treated the same way and families shouldn't have to worry about this. When you were formulating the proposal and the ideas, when you started talking about this, the first thing you went to right away was stigma that we talk about all these other things, but not about the mental health issue. It seems that stigma reductions is this major challenge of all of our mental health agencies. All of our behavioral health professionals are trying to figure out how do we get more people to come get therapy? Where do we even begin with this stigma problem? It's such a hard thing for politicians to talk about. Well, I think that's why I talk about it is we have to make it more commonplace. Uh, You know, Frustratingly, there was a second part of SB 14 when I introduced it on mental health first aid. You know how we require public entities to have training in CPR, physical first aid? We don't require school districts to have a percentage of their staff trained in mental health first aid. And so the second part of the bill was to make sure that 50% of all school personnel were trained in seeing the warning signs of depression, seeing the warning signs of suicide, knowing how to direct the student to where they get help. And unfortunately, that was stripped from the bill, which is mind boggling, given where we are with the pandemic, with our kids going back, the fact that we had an unprecedented amount of resources to pay for the training this year, that there was resistance to having 50% of of school personnel trained to help. And during our first hearing, and by the way, the bill got out of the Senate 38-0, It was the assembly education chair who refused to have that element in the bill, which is inexplicable that he would take such a hard line on something that made so so much sense. But when we had our hearing in the Senate, a dad called into the hearing and said, my 14-year-old daughter turned in her journal as an English assignment, got an A on the assignment, and then two weeks later took her own life. Oh, my God. And he said, all the signs of suicide were in the journal. He said, I don't blame the teacher because the teacher wasn't trained to see those signs of suicide. That's why we need to have this training so teachers know what to look for. 
And so that's why the second part of that bill is necessary. We have Thank to make sure people know what to look for so people get help. Right. You you also got signed this year, you got passed, and then the governor signed SB 224 requiring mental health education to be included in other health education curriculum for, for public school students. Tell me more about how that came about and the formation of that policy. Well, frankly, one of the things that I've seen, I have two daughters that are a decade apart, 20 and 30. And so what I've seen is that today's generation is much more nurturing than prior generations. They look out for each other. They care about each other. And so the coalition of professionals of mental health organizations came to me with that curriculum proposal. And I thought it was a fantastic idea because as we know, teenagers can be very, very ardent advocates. Frankly, sometimes when they don't have the facts, imagine how they would be when they're armed to look out for each other, care for each other, advocate for each other. And so that's the theory behind this is let's educate young people in an age appropriate way so they can be advocates for each other and know what they're talking about, know the implications. You know, some schools have wellness centers on campus. Some schools don't. Some schools have social work. There's such a disparity in the level of, of care from district to district. But if we standardize the curriculum where this young people learn and then can advocate for themselves, they're going to be outstanding advocates and they're going to help their peers get the help they need because no one's going to tell them no. You talked about the, the generation now being so much more nurturing and there probably is no greater example of that than the advocacy for mental health. Um, right. Seeing these kids care about the mental well-being of their friends and classmates is remarkable. And I remember going back to my own childhood decades ago, and I don't know that there was that warmth or that caring for classmates. They're protective. Yeah. They're protective of each other. It's very endearing to see it. It's so laudable that they, you know, that notion that they all wanted to step on each other to get ahead. That's not the case broadly anymore. Now they really do look out for each other and it's, it's nice to see. Now the challenges I think are greater. I don't know if you knew it, but you know, I put the suicide prevention hotline number on student IDs a couple right. of years back. And again, what that did is it stimulated the conversation. You know, 99% of the students aren't going to need that suicide hotline number, but the ones that do are going to use it. And then the ones that are sort of you know, wobblers, the ones that are, are struggling, it's going to stimulate a conversation at home. And we don't have to put the football schedule on the student ID. The suicide hotline number was much more important. And so what Absolutely. I found is it stimulated that conversation. I love that. I'm going to throw it to my co-host, Dr. Audrey Jordan, Claremont Lincoln faculty. Dr. Jordan, what you got? Yeah, Senator Fortentino, I am so fascinated by this conversation and grateful for your work because what you're pointing out in terms of the peer support for peers with mental illness is really a paradigm shift. Because like Jed, I go back in the day further in the day than Jed does. But when I went to school, it was the peer pressure and the peer criticism that was a source of mental illness probably for a lot of people. So what a shift. I think about it also from a standpoint of advocacy. A while back, I did some of my work in mental health. And I know some of the strongest advocates, the constituency we listened to, were the families of mentally ill folks. Because a lot of times, 
those people themselves are just dealing with their illness. You need a constituency that advocates and pushes politicians. So I'm curious, what kind of constituency do you have around you that supports and gets behind your advocacy for this kind of legislation? Well, sadly, Audrey, I'm part of that constituency. Uh, My older brother took his own life. And what I learned in the aftermath, you know, uh, like many small towns, my small town has a every week Sunday concert and, you know, 500 to 1000 people show up and you see the same people every Sunday night. And what I learned after my brother's suicide was people started coming up and sharing their story. People that I saw for 20 years every Sunday night, sitting in the same chair in the same spot, listening to the same music, never brought up mental health until I joined the club, until I was a survivor of that club that no one should be in. Then they were comfortable and they would share about their son, their daughter, their aunt, their mother, their brother, their sister. And it really hit home to me just how prevalent the the mental health issues are and depression are across the board. The other thing is going through the system with my older brother as well, you know, having him in and out of three different county hospitals, dealing with the commitment system, dealing with the evaluation system, really gave me an understanding of how much help we need there as well. And I've tried to do some legislation based on my own experiences through that system. So that's what, you know, drives you know, a big part of me. The other part of, you know, obviously being a dad and being plugged in with, uh, you know, the PTA and a lot of the mental health providers throughout my district that are contracted with school districts to provide these services. I've always been close to those services and then sharing my own personal experience just gives me the perspective of how important this is. You know, I don't want to read in the newspaper about another young people who took their own life. I don't want to read about another tragedy that we you know, need to come together and prevent. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I did the late start bill a few years ago by moving the school start time back, because there's 35 years of research that shows when teenagers sleep in the morning, they perform academically better and they think about suicide less. And again, the institutions opposed it, you know, tooth and nail, you know, people were, were mad at me. Several Claremont school board members were livid with me for that. And they weren't alone because the entire school boards association opposed it and the teachers association. And I united management and labor behind the opposition of that bill, which again, 35 years of science that said, if your students sleep in in the morning, they're going to do better and kill themselves less. And that was opposed. I mean, just mind boggling. Yeah. You, you made it student centric. Let's think about what's best for the kids. Y'all not us. And that brings me to what you're seeing as a result of the pandemic and people being shut in. And, you know, I, I've been hearing about studies where the mental health incidents and prevalence has just started to skyrocket. So the timeliness of your bill is amazing. Yeah, it's through the roof. I, you know, two out of five students thinking about suicide, again, across all socioeconomic strata, not seeing their peers for two years and then all of a sudden going back. One of the stories, that I, I love, a parent told me about their 13-year-old daughter who was afraid to go to class the first day because over the pandemic, she developed acne and she didn't want her peers to see her with acne because she hadn't seen them. And she was really, really depressed that morning. And then in the afternoon, when she came home from school that first day, she wasn't depressed anymore. And the mother asked her, you know, did everything go all right? She said, yeah, all my friends had acne too. So 
being around, that was a situation where being around her peers comforted her because she got to see that it didn't just happen to her, it happened to all of them, but they didn't get to see it gradually. But the mental health challenges of our students is, is through the roof right now. You know, even with, you know, my wife and I, with our own daughter, you know, she went off to college. She, she missed her senior year of high school and her freshman year of college. So this is really her first year there. You know, we were questioning, has she forgotten how to make friends? You know, did she, is she going to socialize? You know, normally parents stress over the academic aspects of college. We were stressing over the social aspects of college. And I know there's thousands of families out there worrying about their children. You know, are they going to interact well? You know, are they going to socialize or are they going to do what they were doing pre-pandemic with the stresses that were already there? Now with the learning loss, the pressures to perform, the inherent, you know, the question of where you're going to go to college is, didn't change. Just the preparedness of that student for college changed. So in many respects, the pressures that were there are putting more pressures on our kids just because they haven't had the life experiences over the past two years that prepare them to deal with those issues. Senator, we know that there was a mental health crisis before the pandemic, and I know that you were already working on this issue pre-COVID. In your strategizing, in the way that you look at the issue, COVID comes, what's changed? How is your priorities, your strategies in trying to address the issue? Have you recentered any sort of focus or areas where you want to try and lay some policy down? I think the urgency is the key factor. I think we can't wait anymore. We have to stop talking about these issues. We have to, you know, I'd love to see a social worker on every campus. I'd love to see a wellness center on every campus. I'd love to see us take a, to reimagine what it's like to be on a campus post COVID. I think those are the big picture things we need to look at. We really need to look at the model of education, the classroom size, the interaction, how we interact with the private sector, you know, how we're going to prepare our kids, how we're going to make up for the learning loss. We also have unique challenges with our special needs population. You know, I always go back to a, to a friend of mine who was who severe, you know, was a bag chip filler at Vons. You know, that's all he knew. That's all Andy knew how to do was go to Vons, say hello to people and put their groceries in a bag. And during the strike, didn't know, you know, when there was a grocery strike, didn't know what to do with his time, his life, because that was his routine. You know, he was there to say hello and be an ambassador. And I was very pleased that UFCW recognized that they had a number of special needs members and, you know, folks who needed to cross the picket line. You know, when we all were respecting the picket line, they let some of those bag checkers who didn't, who didn't understand what was going on. And, and so our special needs population needs great care. Our average population needs great care across the board. There's an urgency that I hope everybody embraces. That's the key message I'd like to say. This isn't something for next year. This is something for tomorrow. Senator, you're going right to the issue saying that we already knew the issues existed and the need to act has been amplified and ramped up. So let's talk about the political landscape around this. I know that one of the things that you're really, really good at is convening the stakeholders and building alliances and coalitions. So the behavioral health agencies, the behavioral health directors, the NAMIs, the agencies and the organizations that are working on this, is this issue being adequately funded right now the way it stands? 
Well, let me give a big shout out because the coalition is broad from the California Council of Community Behavioral Health Agencies, Disability Rights California, Next Gen Policy, the County Behavioral Health Directors, Born This Way, which is Lady Gaga's foundation. They were all part of the coalition for SB 14. On 224, we had the California Alliance of Children and Family Services, the California Association of Student Councils, the California Children's Partnership, California Youth Empowerment Network, Gen Up, National NAMI, National Center for Youth Law. They were the co-sponsors of 224. And there's a list of nonprofits, you know, several pages long that supported both of those efforts. So the coalition is broad. I think we're blessed as a society to have so many great places to take our kids, to share our burdens with. The nonprofit world has stepped up and is stepping up. My frustration is these are healthy budget years. It's the institutions that are resistant. It's not the students. It's not the parents. It's not the service providers. It's convincing the institutions that we need to be on campus. We need to be there, that there's a partnership that needs to be conducted between the nonprofit providers, the families, the school districts, because it used to be about the silos. This is our space. That's your space. You send them to us. We've got to get out of the silos. That's why I keep saying we've got to reimagine how we make campuses safe. You know, that's to me the, the frustration. The resources are there. These are healthy. You know, everybody thought two years ago that the budgets were going to be miserable. We actually had the opposite. And the governor's projecting a big surplus for next year as well. Um, we have to, from a policy perspective, prioritize this. And I'm actually going to be between now and January having some stakeholder meetings because I don't want to fight anybody. You know, I want folks to come along. And so we are having stakeholder meetings with the different groups to just say, hey, how do we make this work? How do we get to yes? What are the real objections to making this happen? And that's what we got to do. Senator, one of the first classes that students in the MPA program at CLU take is strategic communication not only identifying the issues you got to talk about, but how do you have really hard conversations? And by taking this issue on and being such a champion for it, I know that you just described it perfectly. You're dealing with institutions that you're proposing change, and that's hard. Tell me how, and I, I'm sure our students would love to hear this, tell me about how you approach that. You walk into a meeting, and you're talking to an agency, and you're suggesting something that maybe is threatening to their hold on power of an issue or a procedure or a program. How do you approach that? You talk about, I don't want to fight anyone. I want to bring people together. How do you get that started with people who are already beginning from a place of tension? Well, you know, you have to recognize that these are emotional conversations. You know, one of the, the very first leadership conference I went to 25 years ago when I first got elected to a city council, the moderator said, who expects to use reason as a leadership style? And we all raised our hands. And the moderator says, well, you're all going to fail. Because if you expect to just lay out your argument in a reasonable, intelligent manner and expect people to just rally behind it because you did such a good job setting the stage, said it doesn't work that way it says people are emotional and you have to find a way to hook on their emotions and now you can use reason to do that but you got to find a personal way 
to bring people to the table. And honestly, Jed, sometimes that's hard. Right. Sometimes the other side puts up the shield as well. They don't want to be, they don't want their heartstrings tugged because they want to keep it in the, you know, the silo aspect of the world and not respond to the emotional piece. And people get mad at me sometimes when I would make my closing argument on the late start, I'd say, let me say this again, test scores go up and death goes down. Why are you opposed to that? <laughs> you know, yeah. and that would piss people off because it would force them to confront the reality that their opposition actually might kill somebody. You know, that was my New Jersey coming out. <laughs> you, you can't be that blatant, but you've got to find a way to bring them along emotionally. You've got to find a way to marry the intellectual argument with the emotional argument. And you've also got to find a space for them to share their own perspective. That's, you know, there's an old saying, I think Dan Schnur said it all the time. The second most important part of a conversation is what I think. Right. And you've got to right. welcome their thoughts into the conversation. So you really have to be open to their perspective. Even if you disagree with it, you got to let them air it out and give their pound of flesh. Senator, I know that there will come a time several months from now when you there'll be a deadline for you to introduce your bills and all the things that you're working on. But give us a roadmap for the future on the things you want to work on in mental health. If we had a blank canvas right now and you could paint the painting of what you think the next couple of policy victories ought to be, tell me where you'd start. Well, I think, you know, a wellness center on every campus, a social worker on every campus, I think those would be great accomplishments. You know, my daughter, when she was a senior in high school, volunteered at the wellness. She was at a school district that independently raised money to pay for a wellness center. And that was her volunteer job. And I was very proud of how seriously she took her time there. And I could tell it, it, it helped her as a volunteer. And I could tell that the wellness center was helping other students. So, you know, having that resource available to every student on site on every campus, I think is important having professionals who are well-trained on every site to deal with those issues. And again, I go back to my colleague in the assembly who got an email from his staff saying he doesn't support training. And it's like, what? You don't support training? Really? And somebody put that, somebody put that in an email? You don't support training? No wonder why you don't support my bill. You know, how dumb is that to write it down? But anyway... So those are the big, I think, well-trained staff, well-trained teachers, well-trained administrators, a safe place on every campus. We're also going to be focusing on law enforcement as well. You know, California was one of the few states in the country that didn't require minimum education qualifications for law enforcement. You know, most states require you to either have an AA or a bachelor's degree. In California, you're 18 years old. We, you know, you go to post, you get certified, you get a gun and you go out on the street. And, you know, you're not, you know, there are certain elements of post that deal with these issues, but not in the level that need to be. And we've seen situations where, you know, police officers didn't know how to deal with an autistic suspect, mm -hmm. suspect with other mental health issues. And so we this year created a curriculum or created, mandated that a curriculum be created to well train our police officers to deal with these situations in the future. So we're going to be requiring that prospectively. We're raising the age. Now you have to be 21 to be a police officer and you either have to have a degree or you have to go through this curriculum. And so creating a more well-rounded individual is going to help in community policing. That's one of the police reforms that's necessary. Next year, we're going to be looking at the mental health training that's specific to mental health 
training and post. So we're not done. We put the framework together this year. I worked with uh, assembly member Reggie Jones Sawyer. He had a bill to require a bachelor's degree and I had a bill to, to create the curriculum. And so we merged the bills together. And so we're gonna do some more work working again with the California Council of Behavioral of Health Agencies, working with them and working with the police chiefs. We're gonna be looking at what other mental health training we can do. So we gotta help the students, we gotta help the classroom, we gotta help the administrators and we gotta help the families. And we also have to help those who are out there keeping the peace and making sure that they're well prepared to serve a well-rounded constituency, not just deal with an escalation of tensions. Senator, one of the things that we talk a lot about in the Claremont Lincoln program is um, is building coalitions and knowing how to talk to people that are in different spaces than you. And when it comes to mental health, I'm just curious to know, when you are in Sacramento, when you're talking to your colleagues and you have an idea, mental health is a focus for you. But let's say you're talking to members and colleagues for whom mental health just isn't their space. Everyone kind of has their space that they're in. Is there a consensus politically that mental health is the crisis that that you and I both think it is? I think, yes. I think it really is on people's radar. Okay. Um, now, everybody has their own pet projects, their own things. I mean, it's easier. Our job's easier when there's no money because you just say there's no money. Mm-hmm. But now that we have a healthy budget, you know, we do have many, many priorities in the state of California. You know, housing is a significant problem. So we have to send a significant amount of our resources to address the housing problem. But there is a recognition that mental health is a very, very important topic. It's not the why, it's the how, where there's no consensus is most people understand the need. It's just who's going to be responsible. It's more of a scope of practice concern than an issue of it being important. Senator, this has been an absolutely amazing conversation, but before I let you go, please let the listeners know where they can find you and what you're up to next. Well, I'm pretty active on social media, so don't be shy. You can contact me there. My district office is in Glendale and San Dimas, so I've got an office in both locations with staff there. My Sacramento office, 916-651-4025 is probably a good number to, to deal with. So don't be shy. Uh, I'm out and about in the community. I get ideas from folks all day long. So I'm happy to steal your good ideas and put them into law. I don't have all the answers. I always say I want to sit next to smart people and learn from them. So if you have a perspective, don't be shy. Love it. And it is always a pleasure. Thank you. Our deepest gratitude to the Senator from the 25th District, Anthony Portentino. Senator, what an awesome conversation, and thank you for being on today. Thanks, Jed, and thank you, Audrey, for doing it. Jed, you should be commended for making this all happen and picking the topic, and Audrey, good to meet you. You too, Senator. Thank you so much. Awesome. Okay, everybody, thank you for being with us. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Senator Anthony Portentino. Audrey, what an amazing conversation. Tell me what you thought about that. What jumps off the page for you? Amazing and fun. What a bright spirit Senator Portentino is. And you could hear the just personal connection, given his experience with his family, the advocacy he feels with staff and teachers in the schools. I just really admire the fact that he's also a doer. He gets it done. He seems to know how to find that common 
thread that brings people together. Like he said, you know, it's not just the facts. You can't make the rational case. You got to touch people and their feelings. And he seems to, I believe him. I believe he's, he's, he's a pro. <laughs> you know, the other thing about it, it's so great to hear from someone who's an advocate for this. And when you hear him talk about what the law was just recently as last year, you stay home because of depression, that's an unexcused absence. That's unbelievable. I mean, you take basic introduction to health as a junior high student, and you don't learn about basic mental health. These are very basic things. And it would seem that why is this happening so late? This should have been done years ago. But clearly, the only reason it's happening now is because of leaders like Senator Portantino. So yeah, he thinks about 360 degrees. He thinks about the resources you need on campus, on site. He thinks about the training that you have to have for teachers and administrators. And he thinks about the education that he wants students to get so that we build a, a very different kind of way we think about mental illness and mental health in our society writ large. I am really thrilled that you were with us to, to hear that conversation to all of you at home, on the bus, on the train, at work. Thank you for being with us for the JEDCast. Hope you enjoyed our conversation with Senator Anthony Portantino, and we will see you next time on the JEDCast. Mm -hmm.